Well, hello from our home to your home. I hope that you all had a wonderful Christmas uh, and, and experienced the presence of Jesus, uh, uh, a Christmas filled with Jesus. Uh, I realize that today, today is going to be the last sermon of 2020. And 2020, quite honestly, is a year that some of you, or a lot of you would like to put in the rearview mirror. Uh, and we're about to turn a page to 2021 this week. And today's message is all about turning. So I want to invite you to do a couple of things uh, before we get going. One is to grab a Bible. I will actually be reading out of the New Living Translation. The reason is this is my study Bible. This is the one I do most of my devotional time with and I studied this passage in. So I'll be reading out of it. It's slightly different than the NIV or ESV, which might be what some of you are most uh, familiar with. Second thing I want to ask you to do, the second thing, is to grab a piece of paper. Uh, you can grab a blank piece or it can have printing on it, doesn't really matter, but maybe eight and a half by 11, something large enough that can be curled up to make a megaphone. Could be fun uh, to do. So <clears throat> we just celebrated uh, Christmas uh, two days ago and we are fast forwarding in John's, or not in John's gospel, but in Luke's gospel uh, to chapter three. And we're fast forwarding 30 years, though, from the birth of Jesus to John preparing the way for Jesus. Now, Jordan just shared uh, verses 1 through 18. So I won't necessarily read those first few verses again, but I think we learn a couple things from there that's really important. Uh, <clears throat> one thing about Luke was he he thought he felt like it was very important to give context, historical context, much like they did in the Hebrew scriptures. And he was a Greek doctor that never knew Jesus. And so he felt like precision and getting his facts just right were super important. And so first he starts off with uh, Tiberius. Tiberius is now the ruler of Rome. He's the emperor. He replaced Caesar Augustus. He's known as a merciless ruler. Additionally, he tells us that uh, that Pontius Pilate is the prefect, and so he is like a Roman ruler in the area of Jerusalem, and that Herod and Antipas and, and Philip, his half-brother, are both also rulers. They are Jewish rulers, and this is not Herod the Great that we read about that had butchered all the babies in Bethlehem. Uh, this is one of his sons, or two of his sons, Herod Antipas and, and Philip, who are half-brothers. And so these guys are also rulers, uh, but they're not doing a very good job. So the political climate in Jerusalem at the time is pretty dicey. It's, it's dysfunctional, if you will. And then you look at who was named high priest. It says that there were two high priests. Now, this was odd because in Jewish tradition, there would only be one high priest. And when they became high priests, they would be high priests for life. But in this case, we hear that there are two different guys that are listed as high priests. So I'm guessing that the religious landscape's a little bit off as well. So that's kind of the backdrop to to John coming on the scene. So let's pick this up. Uh, Luke chapter three, verse two. Uh, we're gonna start halfway through verse two. And it says, at this time, a message from God came to John of Zechariah. So the son of jo Zechariah and Elizabeth, John, who was living in the wilderness. Now, now we learn over in Matthew that John had lived in the wilderness. He had worn camel's hair for a coat and clothing, like rough hewn, uh, furry stuff that probably didn't feel very good. He ate locusts, 
uh, for food and honey. Now, I don't know about you, but the whole idea of locusts, eating locusts seems pretty gross to me. Uh, just thinking of those things crunching in my teeth. Yuck. Uh, but honey, that sounds all right. I love honey. I feel like it's one of the guilt-free things that God lets us eat. I'm like, it's created by God. It's, it's made by bees. It's, it's sweet. It's, it's, it's great. So anyways, that's a little bit about John. You know, the other thing I thought was both John and Jesus spent their time in the wilderness, uh, preparing uh, themselves or God preparing them for the ministry that they would do. So if you happen to find yourself in a wilderness season, uh, maybe you feel like you're on the bench in ministry or you're in between jobs, know that you're not alone, that both uh, John and Jesus and Moses all spent time in the wilderness before God uh, put them in a place where he would use them all in just incredible ways. So that's just a little side note. Verse three says this, says, John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented and received forgiveness for their sins or turned their ways to God. Now, just like uh, prophets of the Old Testament, uh, John preaches a message of repentance. And, and repentance is a Greek word. Uh, it comes from a Greek word, metanoia, and metanoia refers to a uh, redirection of the will or a change of mind. Uh, but this word gets its root uh, for John in the Hebrew word shub, and shub is found like over a thousand times in the Old Testament. It's actually, a, uh, roots of it are found 111 times in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And this word assumes the ancient metaphor of life as a journey. And this word literally means to turn, to turn uh, as you walk along the path of life, uh, journeying with God and others. Your, your decisions determine your direction and you can turn to the right or you can turn to the left and you can turn down the path of God or you can forge away on your own trail. And repentance is an abrupt change of direction. It's a U-turn, if you will. And consider the image. When you turn away from something, you always turn towards something else. The direction of the way you turn matters. And repentance is turning from sin and turning to God. And Jesus, or not Jesus, but John was calling God's people to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. So let's look at verse four. Verse four says this, Isaiah, who was an Old Testament prophet, had spoken of John when he said this, he has a voice, a shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord is coming, clear the road for him. So he's a voice shouting in the wilderness. So I wanna invite you, you kids or adults, now you can grab a piece of paper or you can use your hands. We wanna make a megaphone here. And the idea is that we are going to pretend <clears throat> that we are John or we're living this out ourselves and we're saying, prepare your hearts for the way of the Lord or the coming of the Lord. Kids, you can yell that at your parents right now. You have my permission. Hopefully they'll be okay with this. Prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. So John was, this was the way John came, right? He's letting people know Jesus is coming and you all need to get ready. Uh, if you think about uh, if you think about when an ancient king would come to town, 
uh, his servants, his followers, if he was traveling to a distant region, they would actually prepare the road. His people would prepare the road for the journey. They'd remove obstacles from the road. The road would be leveled. They wanted to expedite the king's coming. Well, here's how that's explained. It says in verse 5, the valleys will be filled, the mountains and hills made level, the curves will be straightened, and rough places made smooth. Uh, in this case, uh, John, John is clearing the way in our hearts and our minds for God. But I want you to think about this passage or this verse, verse 5, in terms of your own life. What valleys in your own life need to be filled? Uh, perhaps uh, there's something that you feel like is missing. Maybe you're out of work right now. Maybe there's someone that's missing from your life, a relationship that's been broken or you've lost someone. What valleys need to be filled? <clears throat> and then what hills, what hills need to be um, or mountains need to be made level? What are the obstacles in your life, those mountains that feel like they're insurmountable for you, uh, that you're constantly coming up against and you need God to move out of the way? Then I like this, what curves or crooked paths need to be straightened? You know, and when we think about life being a journey, uh, some of us are on crooked paths, paths that are taking us to bad places. So what paths either need to be straightened by God or what path are you on that you need to get off of and get onto a new path? This is all about preparing our hearts for the coming of God. And then verse six says this, and then all people, all people will see the salvation sent from God. I love this. You know, in, in Jewish expectation cop, uh, Contrary to popular Jewish belief, Jesus was not coming just for Jews. Jesus was coming for all people, for Jew and Gentile alike, for wealthy and poor, for clean and corrupt. Jesus came. And then he goes on in verse 7. <laughs> Picture this, these crowds. It says, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from God's coming wrath? Uh, some translation said, you brood of vipers. And you imagine that, like you're showing up and some guy's yelling at you. Uh, and you're like, I'm going to come for baptism. I think I'm ready to get baptized. And he says, you brood of vipers, you brood of snakes. Kids, grab your megaphones again. Say, you brood of vipers, you brood of snakes. As a matter of fact, if you're home alone, you can yell it at me on the screen. Can you brood of vipers? What an endearing phrase, huh? You brood of vipers. Uh, you brood of vipers. Welcome to Salem. We're so glad to have you here. What a welcoming way to just uh, to engage with people. But, but it is an attention getter, isn't it? It's a wake-up call, a gut check, if you will. And it doesn't matter how long you've been journeying with Jesus. Uh, we need to continue to invite God, invite Jesus uh, to, to wake us to those areas where we're numb, numb to our, to, numb to our sin, uh, to shake us, to get our attention, to wake us from our slumber. Well, then John continues in verse 9. He says this about repentance. He says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. 
He says, don't just say to each other, we're safe for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. And so he says, prove to, to, that you've repented by the way you live. But reality is if you look at this passage, this could be a little bit scary for some of you that have grown up in a, a Christian home. Maybe you grew up and you've never known life apart from believing that you're a Christian. You believe that you've always been a Christian, but John warns you aren't born a Christian. You need to choose to be a Christian or, or even more accurately, a Christ follower. Bluntly, you are not safe from hell simply because you grew up in a Christian home. You have to make a personal decision to surrender your life and to follow Christ, to turn from your sin and to choose or turn towards Christ. And then John lightens up a little bit. And I, and I say that in jest. He says, even now, even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. That's pretty sobering. And theologians debate the nature of the judgment mentioned by John the Baptist. Uh, and we won't dive into that fray today. Uh, this isn't a message about hell, and it doesn't need to be. That's not the driving point of the text. Uh, but to be honest, to be honest, I care less about what you believe about hell and more about what you believe about Jesus. What one believes about heaven or hell never sent anyone to heaven or hell. Did you hear that? Let me repeat it. What one believes about heaven or hell never sent anyone to heaven or hell. But one, what one believes about Jesus does send you to one of those two places. And John's point is repentance. And so in verse Eight, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And now he gives this image. He offers an image of a fruit-bearing tree. A life of repentance bears a certain type of fruit. So what is the product of your life? What type of fruit are you producing? A fruit-bearing a fruit tree that no longer bears fruit is quite honestly just wasting resources. And so it's chopped down and it's used for firewood. And John, John isn't promoting uh, salvation by works here, though. Just like the apostle uh, James said, real faith works. Real faith works. Like when we have real faith in Jesus, we work. Has your repentance and has your relationship with Jesus uh, changed the way you lived? Has it changed the way you think? Changed the way you hope? Changed the way you value others? Changed the way you forgive? Has it changed the way that you love? You see, James, uh, in his uh, book, his epistle, James chapter 2, verse 17, he said, faith by itself is, is, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Action doesn't earn God's favor. Action is evidence of true faith. If your faith doesn't show up in how you live, uh, James questions whether it's really faith at all. Uh, John's message to the people as he prepares the way for the Lord is simple. He says, turn, turn from sin and turn to God. 
Well, verse 10, so there's crowds gathering and they're listening to this message and the crowds say, well, so, so what should we do? How do we react? What should we do with this information? What kind of change are you talking about? And, and John gets super simple and super practical. In verse 11, John says this. He says, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. So he basically says, give to the poor and feed the hungry. Live out love in your lives. John doesn't offer an endless list of rules. It's just a simple message of love to share what you have to have to be generous. If you have extra, give to someone else. Now, additionally, in the audience, there were tax collectors. It says even corrupt tax collectors in verse 12 came to be baptized. Now, and they asked, teacher, what should we do? Now, few people are more despised uh, in, in New Testament times than tax collectors. They were lumped in with sinners when you'd hear about them, tax collectors and sinners. And the thing about tax collectors were they were Jewish people that were employed by the Roman government to collect taxes. But when they collected taxes, <clears throat> when they collected taxes, uh, they would frequently collect more uh, than was necessary, and they would align or, or line their own on their own pockets with the money that they would receive. And so, while they were getting richer, their victims were getting poorer, and they were hated because of this. Not only because they worked for the Roman government, but because they took advantage of people. And they asked the question, "What should we do?" And John responds. He said, collect no more taxes than the government requires. Notice he doesn't forbid their work. He doesn't say, quit your job and go get a different job. He forbids them from getting richer while their victims get poor. Instead of uh, lining your own pockets, overcharging others, he says, only charge what the government requires. Just do your job, but do it in the right way. And do it with an ungreedy heart and a generous way. And then in verse 14, there's some soldiers that have gathered around too, and they're listening, and they say, well, what should we do? Now, these weren't Roman soldiers. These would have more than likely been soldiers that worked for Herod, so they were Jewish soldiers, but they were known for abusing their authority. So John replies to them when they ask, what should we do? He says, <clears throat> excuse me. He says, don't extort money or make false accusations. Be content with your pay. I'm going to get a drink of water because I need one. <clears throat> Excuse me. So he says, don't extort money or make false accusations, but be content with your pay. He says, don't wrongly accuse people. Don't leverage your power for evil. Don't use the excuse of your low pay uh, to justify taking wrongly from others. You see, his message, when they ask the question, what should we do? And that's the same question we should be asking ourselves. What should we do, God? What is it you want us to do? And his message to his listeners was simple. It was turn. Turn from sin and turn to God. <clears throat> to people who have honored God with their lips, but not their lives, he says, turn. To people who have honored God with their heads, but not their hearts, he says, turn. 
But what does this mean for us? Uh, this is where, as church leaders, we really got to be careful. Because if we're not careful, the gospel uh, for many uh, just seems like a, a list of do's and don'ts, right? You get the impression by hearing from preachers or different people or leaders in the church uh, that uh, it's all about a list of do's and don'ts. You think, gosh, preacher says, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Um, but let me be clear. Let me be clear. There's a big difference between following rules and following Jesus. Uh, does Jesus have something to say about right, right living? Absolutely. But Jesus came at it from a different angle. Uh, this doesn't mean we should avoid applying the rules and laws to our life, right? And John just did. He gave us application to the soldiers and the tax collectors. <clears throat> but fo focusing on details while losing sight of love is simply adventures in missing the point. Did you notice that at the core of all of John's application, what was at the core of all of John's applications? It was generosity. It was mercy. It was justice. It was love. His message was so refreshing to his listeners. Uh, verse 15 goes on. Everyone was expecting the Messiah to come, and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. But John quickly uh, puts that thought to rest. You see, these folks, were they were expecting a king, a ruler. They were hoping that they would have a warrior arrive on the scene that would help them to overthrow Rome, to oppress or to defeat the oppression that they were under, to return them to glory. But, but John quickly lets them know that that's not the case, that he is not the Messiah. John answers their question in verse 16 by saying, I baptize you with water which is a baptism of repentance. But some, someone is coming soon who is greater than I, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave or untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You know, later on, when Jesus was asked about John, he would say that there was none greater than John which is high praise, right? When you look at all of the people of eternity, Jesus said that there was none greater than John. And here John says that he's not even worthy to be Jesus' slave or to untie his sandals. That's how great of praise he was giving Jesus. I was trying to think, like, how could we picture this in our minds? And I thought, think about a 12-year-old little league baseball player who's actually an all-star, like he's a really good baseball player. But then you compare him to the major league baseball, MLB MVP, and the comparison isn't even close. One guy is, you know, a 12-year-old who hasn't even hit puberty, who happens to have some pretty good skills at baseball, and the other is one of the best in the world, the best to ever do it. The comparison, the difference is massive more than we can even imagine. And that's how great our God is, how wise and loving. And we think of the most brilliant, kindest person we know, and that person fails in comparison to how great Jesus is. Well, then in verse 17, he goes on, and he's talking about Jesus. And he says here in verse 17, 
This is pretty sobering as well. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, which is great, right? The healthy people, the people that have repented and are following God will be gathered into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Picture a a farmer with a pitchfork tossing grain into the air. The heavier grain uh, falls, the wheat does, but the lighter chaff blows away. It's, it's another image of judgment. And the image of Jesus as judge makes so many of us uncomfortable. But John's audience expected it and even desired it of their Messiah. And the truth is, you want a God who will engage evil. You want a God who will engage in justice. Well, verse 18 continues. And it says, John, John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. I feel like it's kind of ironic, like he's sharing all these stark and fearful and harsh warnings, and yet it was considered good news. You see, it was good news to us here. They were thankful for a judge to be this, for, because, because the type of judge that Jesus would be, a judge that offers accountability with mercy. You see, the good news of the kingdom is coming. He warns the wretched that his kingdom is coming. And John invites each one of us to journey with Jesus, following him and his ways. He's ushering in a new season, a new way of life. He's letting us know about the coming Messiah. And quite honestly, this seems like a good time to turn a page, to start afresh, to start anew. And there's three words that have come to mind for me as I think through this. And they are this, and because I'm at home and I don't have a PowerPoint, this will serve as my PowerPoint. Uh, repent. Repent, which is John's message. Replenish and refocus. Repent, replenish, and refocus. So let's talk about repent for a few moments. John challenges us. He warns us. He invites us to repent. So as you think about your life and you think about 2021 and you think about those things that that sin in your life that has held you from being all that God wants you to be, from moving forward in different ways. What sin do you need to turn from and where do you need to turn to God? I invite you to take an inventory of your life or at least pause and prayerfully reflect and say, God, what is it in my life that continues to either harm me or harm others or harm you? And God, I want to confess that to you. Do you know that behind every sin is a lie? It's either a lie about God or a lie about yourself. And ask God to help you see the truth of who he is, the truth of his love, and ask God to give you the power and strength uh, not in yourself, but in him to overcome that sin and to put that sin behind you, to turn, right? To turn and repent and for 2021 to be, uh, to be a time where that crooked path becomes straight and you get back on or on for the first time ever, the straight path towards Jesus and his love. So we want to repent. Another way we want to turn is we want to replenish replenish. I love this word. 
uh, this word excites me. This word kind of gets uh, me going because I think it's so valuable. It's something that uh, I want in my life to be replenished. Uh, this past fall, our staff, uh, all our staff went on a retreat. And as we talked and we prayed and we thought about what would be most important uh, in our journey with Jesus for, uh, for our own personal lives and for our church as a whole, uh, the word that came or the phrase that came uh, most prevalent to all of us was to be replenished, to be replenished in Jesus. We overwhelmingly agreed on that. And, and we want to see ourselves replenished in Jesus. And we want to see our church family replenished in Jesus. That the most valuable thing that we could do is to personally replenish ourselves and to encourage and inspire and equip our leaders and our volunteer and volunteers in our church family to be replenished with Jesus. We want to create new rhythms uh, where we're spending that time with God, whether it's uh, reading his word on a daily basis, whether it's uh, just having our prayer life start to flourish and for prayer to become a more regular routine, spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines. What are those things? Uh, worship music, uh, quiet walks next to the river. What are those things that help you to engage with God to, for your heart and soul and mind to be replenished? Uh, one of my favorite authors on the topic is a guy by the name of Dallas Willard. And this is a he shares a, a phrase that I quite often go back to and read and reflect on. And he says this. He says this about our lives with Jesus. He says, you must arrange your days so that you are experiencing total contentment, joy, and confidence in your everyday life with God. That and that alone is what makes a soul healthy. Let me repeat that. You you and I must arrange our days so that we are experiencing total contentment, joy, and confidence in our everyday lives with God. Wouldn't you love that in your life? What can you do to start having your soul replenished, to spend time with Jesus so that he is filling you up? You know, our, our mission here at Salem is to live lives of love with God in community and on mission. And this replenishment, really, a lot of it is about our lives with God. All three of those things, being in community and on mission, can also impact that. But when you think about your life with God, uh, I mentioned a little bit ago, one of the things that can be super instrumental is, is just daily engagement in God's Word. Uh, God has this uh, power to speak through the living word, to not only encourage us, but to convict us, uh, to speak to us. Like, I don't know that there's a way that I have experienced God's presence and direction more in my life than by just regular reading of God's word. And so each year we have made a Bible reading plan available. There will be one available on our website as well as at our Connection Center next week when we come back. Maybe you want to pick up a Bible reading plan and, and start that, but please uh, look to create rhythms in your life that will help you engage with God and for you to be replenished in 2020. Now, the last one I want to share is refocus, refocus. Uh, Salem, let's make 2021 a year that we remember 
for what God has done in our lives and in our church family, uh, that we would refocus our eyes on Jesus. We have had so much happen in 2020. Uh, we had the two church campuses come together. We experienced political turmoil, racial tensions. Uh, we experienced COVID and all the ways that that has rocked our lives and adjusted us. I want to encourage us to put the hardships and disappointments of 2020 behind us. Not that we wouldn't learn from those and not that God wasn't up to amazing things through those, but I wanna challenge us and invite us and encourage us to renew our focus on Jesus. Uh, let's come together to be a body of Christ, the body of Christ to live lives of love for our awesome God in Jesus-centered unity uh, with a spirit-born drive to advance God's kingdom, not only not only in our hearts and in our homes, uh, but in our community and to all the ends of the earth. As I was wrapping up this message and preparations, uh, the passage that came to mind was Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 that says this, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus and serve our God together for his glory and for our good. Would you do that with us? Let's pray together. Uh, Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for this message that John showed up to pave the way for Jesus and that he all called that he called us all to repent, to turn our ways, but to turn away from things that harmed us, harmed others and harms God and invites us to turn towards God in his way and his love and his guidance and his direction and his hope. And I pray that that would happen in each and every one of our hearts, minds and souls. God, move and do what you need to in our hearts so that we can repent and turn from those things that hurt us to those things that help us and heal us. Help us to live in your presence and to be replenished by you. Help us as a church family to come together in incredible ways with Christ-centered unity, to be the body of Christ living for you, with you, uh, just to advance your kingdom in amazing ways. Help us to be a body of believers that loves you deeply and that loves our community well. God, we know that you are powerful and mighty and that you can do the impossible. And we ask you to do amazing things uh, through each one of us today and in the weeks and months and years to come. Move mightily. Move mountains. Fill valleys. Straighten crooked paths in our hearts, our minds, and our souls. We thank you, God, that you can and will do these things. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thanks for letting me be in your home today. Have a blessed Sunday.